exploring America's ever-changing workforce. This is Help Wanted, a special presentation from ABC News Radio. Here's your host, correspondent Sherry Preston. Welcome to the second Labor Day of the new normal, a year and a half after the pandemic upended pretty much everything we thought we knew about work. In the past 18 months, we've seen traditional jobs go away and come back again months later, sometimes with better hours and more pay. We've seen the creation of unique jobs that actually began developing before 2020. Some of you will soon be returning to workspaces you haven't seen in over a year, while others will continue careers from home offices that were set up out of necessity. A lot of Americans have begun new careers as entrepreneurs, and some are now creating their own way of making a living. Who would have thought five years ago that TikTok influencer would be something you could put down on a resume? ABC News Chief Business and Economics Correspondent Rebecca Jarvis spends a lot of time tracking the nation's employment picture. So, Rebecca, what are we looking at on this Labor Day of 2021? Well, we're looking at a jobs picture that has recovered to a large degree since the pandemic. 22 million jobs were wiped away in the months of March and April of 2020. We've recovered millions of those jobs, but we still have a ways to go. If you think about it, the unemployment rate today is 5.4%, 8.7 million people are out of work. Before the pandemic, the unemployment rate was 3.5%. There were 5.7 million people out of work. So there's still a ways to go, but we have recovered considerably. Rebecca, we hear over and over again that this is a job hunter's market. There are jobs out there to be had if people are looking for them. Driving across the country, you see help wanted signs on every kiosk in every store, it seems, in every city. I mean, they just can't get enough workers. What's going on with that? Absolutely everywhere. 10.1 million job openings. And there are a handful of issues at play here. One is a mismatch. So for example, I've talked to a number of small business owners, people who run restaurants, coffee shops, the people who were employed before the pandemic at their locations might not live in those areas anymore. I'll give you a really specific example. In New York City, where a lot of people who work on Broadway, they have their daytime free. So what do they do during the day? They work at a coffee shop. Well, I've talked to owners of coffee shops and restaurants in New York who say all of these workers left the city when Broadway shut down. So now that pool of talent doesn't exist and it might not exist until Broadway comes back until the regular people who were doing those jobs previously come back to a place like New York. There's also the issue around childcare. Schools have been remote. And when schools are remote, that puts parents, and in particularly moms, where we've seen this over-index, in this terrible position of having to make a choice of whether to continue with a job or care for the family. And then there's this question of the enhanced unemployment benefits and the fact that there are people who could have been making more on enhanced unemployment benefits when you factor in both what the state has provided and then what the federal government has provided, that if they were to look at the kind of income they could expect from working inside of a restaurant, for example, they could make just as much, if not potentially a little bit more, by collecting unemployment benefits. And, And this is something I've heard from people who are not going back to work yet, They have side hustles. What some people are doing is collecting unemployment benefits on top of it. Suddenly, that picture is working a lot better for them than going back to an office. All of these things collectively, as we see the shifts and the return to a more normal environment, 
You should see some of the people who might not be seeking work today, seek it in the future. And if you're seeking a job right now, you have very strong negotiating power around wages and additional benefits. Even though some restaurants have reopened their doors and are now offering more competitive wages to their workers, the past year has been incredibly difficult for restaurant owners. They still face many challenges, some because of the pandemic and others not. ABC's Mark Remillard takes a look at an industry in the midst of a reset. Sherry, March 2020 upended everyone's life. Coronavirus reaching U.S. shores sent the economy in a tailspin, and local governments quickly took action to try and slow the spread, including shutting down indoor dining in many places. The thing I remember most about those early months and and weeks um, was, like, the word grief comes to mind a lot. This is Sava Farah. She's the founder and owner of the Poolpo Group in Ann Arbor, Michigan. She says when COVID hit, she was forced to close the doors of her three restaurants. We were running three wildly successful concepts. We had to lay off over 200 employees that we called family. At the time, no one knew if it'd be weeks, months or years before they could reopen. Some places would never reopen. All across the country, restaurant owners were faced with an uncertain future. Many relied on to-go orders and outdoor dining to stay afloat. But for many restaurants, that was never going to cut it. About 100,000 restaurants closed as a result of the pandemic since about March 20th. 2020. Micheline Maynard is an author and columnist for The Washington Post who writes about business and culture. For the hospitality industry at large, things started to look up in December 2020 as the federal government approved the first two COVID-19 vaccines. And by February of this year, cases started dropping. Mask mandates were being lifted, businesses were reopening, and restaurants were once again able to offer indoor dining. But instead of a triumphant return, restaurant owners found themselves facing new challenges. COVID had upset supply chains, making it difficult to acquire ingredients. Workers that returned needed to be retrained. But perhaps the biggest challenge has been the workers that didn't come back. They are about a million positions short. So if you look at who is working in restaurants in 2019 versus today, there's about a million people who have disappeared. So where did all the workers go? Well, the issue, like virtually everything these days, has become political. Conservatives argue the vast amounts of money that have been offered as part of federal assistance packages took the incentive away from people going back to work. Sava Farah says she believes that's been a factor. We're overpaying a lot of people to stay home. For Carissa Velasquez, who works at a cafe and a brewery in the Los Angeles area, she says it really depended on who you are. Working at a brewery, I work with a lot of younger people that don't have like kids to worry about or don't have like big financial responsibilities to worry about. And then there were other people that I've known, they said that the unemployment wasn't cutting it. Those enhanced unemployment benefits won't be around forever, of course. More than half the states in the union have already ended those benefits. And in late August, the Biden administration committed to ending the program altogether. So while Republicans say it's a lack of incentive, Democrats say, well, if you just paid people better, they'd want to work. So you get a very low wage, you know, as much as five dollars less than the minimum wage. And then your tips are supposed to bump you up to minimum or above. Well, a lot of people were not getting enough hours to even get to minimum wage, 
versus the higher, you know, higher bonuses above that. Micheline Maynard says there are no doubt some who left the restaurant industry due to the pandemic and found jobs elsewhere with higher pay and naturally didn't come back. When they went around looking for other places to work, they could make $15 an hour, $20 an hour. But higher pay is in everything. Saba says there needs to be higher wages, but that's still not enough. I have so many guests that tell me every day, oh, you don't have enough staff? Can't you just pay them enough? Our staff is making anywhere between 20 and $40 an hour. So if it's not a matter of pay necessarily, then what's the problem? Micheline and Sava say it's an industry problem. Working in a restaurant is hard work to begin with, and now with a shortage of labor, workers are having to pick up the slack. They're also dealing with COVID-specific challenges outside of their control. Now the servers are tasked with reminding people that they have to have a mask on. And one of the things that's going on with food is that the supply chain has been interrupted for a number of these restaurants. They can't get the ingredients that they used to get slipped to take stuff off the menus. And the person who hears the complaints about that is the server. It's not much better in the kitchen either. High stress, high temperatures, and a rigid hierarchy make for a challenging work environment. So what can be done to help the industry? Saba says it was overcrowded before the pandemic ever exposed the fault lines. And she says it's past time for a shakeup, even if that means doors have to close. I don't think that's a very bad thing. I know at least one of my restaurants is closed, and I think it was a value add for, 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 the, for the businesses because... I think there's just way too much competition in the marketplace currently, and it causes all the restaurants around to have to lower their prices. And when you lower your prices, you lower your pay rates, you lower your profit margins, you lower the caliber of the restaurant. Micheline Maynard says perhaps it's time legislators got involved, especially if more federal money ends up going to restaurants. It's time. I covered the auto bailout. And when General Motors and Chrysler asked Congress for billions of dollars in help, basically Congress and then the Obama and Bush administration said, there are going to be some strings attached. You can't just take our money and operate your companies the way you did from 1900 onward. And so what I'm saying is that restaurants need that same kind of examination. And as for everyone else, those of us who get to enjoy the meals and spend the time with family and friends at restaurants, Carissa Velasquez asks in this difficult time for the industry. Be patient. Your beer will come. (laughs) Honestly, just be patient. Mark Remillard, ABC News. There are more than 350,000 career firefighters in this country. It's a profession steeped in tradition with units that have been around for what seems like forever. Because of a change in law, however, California has had to start from the ground up, creating a new program of firefighters to battle the state's massive blazes. It has meant a hiring frenzy at Cal Fire, and now intense training is underway for these men and women who put their lives at risk every day. ABC's Alex Stone spent time with a team of firefighters in the mountains above Southern California amongst the giant redwood trees near the town of Crestline. He brings us their story. It's all there and warmed up. Yep. These firefighters are getting ready for battle, Sherry. All right, guys, bring it in. These are Cal Fire's newest firefighters, men and women on the front lines of the wildfire battle here in California, doing the hard labor, building fire line, face to flame, saving communities. Today we're going to do some more training on the climbing program. We're going to be taking out this uh, sequoia here. (laughs) 
With the chainsaws running, this team, members of the Pilot Rock Hand crew, is learning how to climb trees and cut off dead beetle-ravaged tree limbs and how to completely take down giant redwood trees, a necessary skill while battling the wildfires ravaging the west. Get a utility line ready over here. It's critical training in this dangerous year. California is tinder dry in the grips of a drought. Flames have been exploding. These are the teams sent in to stop the walls of flames. Cal Fire Captain Jacob Ching puts on a bunch of safety gear and climbs his way up, showing the all-male crew how to bring down a tree. And it's a big eye-opener, and, and some of them will take cap. I've never done anything like that. And, and it's, it's fun to see that look on their face like, whoa. The work they do is incredibly dangerous. In the next few months, they'll likely battle extreme conditions when the notorious dry and hot Santa Ana winds blow here, creating a blowtorch like I've described on so many wildfires in recent years. I'm in a mobile home park right now where there is fire all around us. But this year is different, not only because conditions are so explosive and dangerous, but Cal Fire is in the middle of changing how things are done. California has long relied on low-threat inmate firefighters to do the hard labor. Some of the most strenuous work of digging fire line to stop flames, using hand tools to dig down the mineral soil to take away any fuel for flames to burn. But this year, because of controversial criminal justice reform rules, many of those inmates have been let out, and Cal Fire doesn't have the inmates to rely on any longer. We are starting off fresh, and we can pick and choose some things that other agencies don't necessarily specialize in. Like what they're doing here, climbing and taking down trees. Captain Brandon Davis is leading this crew. Cal Fire has been on a hiring blitz. Instead of inmates, they'll now have full-fledged paid firefighters doing the work. They're known as Type 1 firefighters. Commanders say they're blown away by how many men and women want to become firefighters it's a mix of backgrounds and ages. Sam Schroeder is 27 years old. He has a fiance and joined this new team. Fire is pretty much what I, that's my goal. It's my livelihood. Even though as a wildland firefighter, it means he now goes days and sometimes weeks without seeing his fiance or other family. He and the rest of this team know that during the summer and fall, they'll work almost every day with very few days off. The way that someone calls you on their worst day and you show up and you can make it somewhat better. You know, just I've always been more of a, uh, a helping hand to people, and I feel that this job allows me to do that. You ever get scared out there? I do, but I mean, every day something scary happens, but you just got to push through and, uh, you know, make sure everything works out. Also on this team are some former inmates who did their time in prison. They were paid a dollar a day to fight fire. Now they make a salary and they have benefits. They're firefighters now in the Cal Fire uniform. Michael Chapman is among them. Pretty happy. I left the Forest Service to come to Cal Fire. Yeah, why? Uh, in all honesty, it's the retirement, the benefits in the long run. So I'm married with the kids, and this helps out. I'm able to financially support my wife and keep a roof over our heads. Even though it means he's gone and battling flames for much of the year and facing danger every time that call comes in. Every day you wake up, you never know what's going to happen. Same with the fire. You might be able to try to predict it never be able to. Carlos Iniguez was also an inmate firefighter. He spent 10 years in prison. He's free now, giving back by joining this team as a firefighter. That tiny inmate salary, now much higher. Yeah, a dollar a day now. Now I'm getting paid, you know. 
I'm getting paid well, let's just say that. Yeah. This team lives right here on site. The old inmate grounds are being changed into what they call a fire center. The inmate rooms are being turned into dorm rooms. Once done, they'll live and work right here for months on end. For now, they live together at housing a few towns away. And, you know, so far so good. I've been a part of the team now, and I, I have I've developed friendships with a lot of the guys here and my captain, so I'm happy. I'm in a good comfortable, happy place. This new firefighter program has taken a lot of work to get off the ground, but Battalion Chief John Heggie says Cal Fire has been blown away by the response of people who want to do it. We're really excited about the program. It adds a, a level of functionality on the fire line that you don't get with the inmate fire crews. It really adds a lot to us on an operational standpoint to be able to do something more advanced with these uh, firefighter crews. Right now, Cal Fire has a dozen crews on duty with a plan and budget to hire more firefighters in the coming years. Years. Truthfully, they're seeing a lot of fire. They are a valuable resource. We're using them up and down the state. Back at the fire center, Captain Brandon Davis is trying to get his new team to trust one another, to make them a true team working together. All right, let's get this limbed up. We'll get the chipper over here. We'll chip everything out that direction. Firefighter Michael Chapman says they are becoming a team. It's been going beautiful. We're all coming up together. We're all growing together, becoming a stronger unit. So our crew cohesion's there, our camaraderie's there, and we, we can only go up from here. He says working together this fire season will mean life and death. It's very important, and if you don't have that, it's not going to work. You have to be jiving to make sure your job's smooth. And you guys are coming together now? Every day, every day. If we see somebody down, we talk to them. It's really a mixed mixed bag of people that we're seeing that are participating in this program. And, and really, they all bring something to the table. And this year, especially with it being so dry, these firefighters are the last line of defense to stopping destruction of cities. These are the guys uh, that wanted to come and, and try the hand crew life out. And a and, uh, good bunch, great bunch to have. And they have the work ethic and the, just willing to learn. With the Pilot Rock hand crew in Crestline, California, I'm Alex Stone, ABC News. The high-stakes cyber wars will be a challenge for decades to come. Criminal hackers working to disrupt along with cybersecurity forces working to protect. And that means a booming field when it comes to jobs. Here's ABC's Michelle Franzen. The threat is all around us and growing. Cyber criminals have been relentless in recent months. Ex Ransomware hacks and attacks from major infrastructure-based companies like Colonial Pipeline. That cyber attack on that critical pipeline that raised gas prices for so many Americans. Maintains a pipeline for much of the nation's oil and gas. It was hit recently. This gas station right here just got a delivery overnight and they're already running out. To retail and credit card companies. Diane, we should be very concerned. This is potentially the most substantial and damaging attack attack on U.S. critical infrastructure ever. The world of cyber is colliding with real life. People are constantly trying to figure out how to make something look innocuous that's malicious. Jason Crabtree is a former advisor to senior cyber leaders in the Defense Department. He now runs a data analysis company focusing on cybersecurity and infrastructure. We still have a lot of organizations that are systemically underinvesting in these capabilities or are not providing sufficient professional development so that they have internal leaders who are up to date with the latest and greatest practices. Crabtree says the pandemic and work from home shift has accelerated the wave of hackers, but that's just one part of the problem. The perfect storm of more people working from home, even more dependence on our digital infrastructure, and frankly, that much more churn and competition for talent to both operate our IT environments and to secure them. The recent attacks have also created a huge opportunity 
for legit jobs. There's a lot of demand for IT writ large and security is a, is a huge demand within it. Will Reinhardt is with Utah State University's Center for Growth and Opportunity. A lot of money to be made here. And, and for somebody who's young and who's interested in this space, it really is still very much a growth opportunity. Basically, the field of IT is HOT. Security analysts are in high demand as a result of those cyber attacks and companies now tasked with securing their everyday operations and consumer information. The Bureau of Labor and Statistics, or BLS, show there were more than 100 130,000 working in the sector in 2019. Entry level oftentimes can make 70 or 80,000 dollars your first year out. Some 50,000 jobs will be added in the next decade. The competition for IT and cybersecurity talent has probably never been higher. Interested in computers, security, maybe have some hacking skills? Turns out those same skills are used in opposite sides of this cyber battle. Red teamers who are trying to attack the network and sort of find the vulnerabilities themselves and not, not having a ransomware gang find them, right? Find and fix them first. And the blue team that's always monitoring all of the logs and data coming off of the network and actually hunting in that for the bad guys. Corporations are the big fish in this cyber pond, but small companies are also not immune to becoming targets. You know, small businesses aren't going to have red teams. They're going to have just folks that work in IT, and those IT professionals often have to be a bit cybersecurity a bit IT, and a bit management, compliance, and governance. Reinhardt and Crabtree say it's all about money. The same people that are behind these huge cyber attacks are also behind the smaller ones. There's a lot of like flexibility that occurs. So that makes, in part, trying to figure out what actually happens to local systems or to a system in particular, it makes it actually very, very difficult to do that kind of track back and to figure out who exactly was was culpable for these actions. Crabtree says it will pay off in the long run for companies, big and small, to prepare for a ransomware attack or any other hack and also have a recovery plan if or when they're hit. If you're a part of the security team at work, Do you manage all your users to make sure people don't have permissions for lots of data or applications that they don't need to use on a daily basis? As for the rest of us, cyber threats are also here to stay, and so is remote work setups. Reinhardt says there are some simple precautions that we can all take to keep our systems secure. The biggest stuff comes through ransomware, so backup data as much as possible. One thing would be to ensure that you you have email passwords that are separate. A cyber security fence and peace of mind. Michelle Franz and ABC News. It's Help Wanted from ABC News Radio. Here's Sherry Preston. During the pandemic, firefighters were considered essential workers, as were first responders, doctors, and nurses. But so were truck drivers. They played a vital role in getting everything from ventilators and masks to hospitals. They also made sure grocery store shelves were stocked during lockdown. ABC's Dana Schaefer reports it doesn't take much to realize what a key role truck drivers play in our nation's economy. As one of the most popular jobs in America, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, driving a truck is one of the most common jobs in 29 of the 50 states and takes up about 5% of the nation's employment. Trucks move over 70% of all goods transported around the U.S. But even with all those impressive stats, there is still a shortage of drivers. It's a big factor on our ability to deliver the freight um, on time. That's Robert Schaefer, also my dad. 
He's been a truck driver for over 30 years and currently works in Newark, New Jersey at XPO Logistics. We are extremely busy. We have enormous amount of freight and customers want their freight and they're shipping more freight than um, usual. The need for truck drivers was always in high demand, but in the last year, the demand has drastically increased with e-commerce and freight supplies becoming essential during the pandemic. The trend toward e-commerce was already happening, but now that we've gone where we are, I don't think there's any going back. Joe Checkler, the vice president of public relations at XPO, says the company is working with a variety of groups to maximize the opportunity of hiring new skilled drivers. We work with a lot of LGBTQ organizations. We work with a lot of historically black colleges and universities. And we also work with veteran groups. And adding new incentives like free driver training school and sign-on bonuses. They get full benefits, they get 401k, they get medical and dental. With the average age of drivers being around 50 years old, it is important to get young drivers in to help. We have an enormous amount of freight that has to be moved. We don't have the amount of drivers that are capable of doing that. In hopes to help solve the shortage, the U.S. Senate is reintroducing the Drive Safe Act, which would lower the age for long-haul drivers to make cross-country trips from 21 to 18 years old. I started in 1985, and I left in 2015, and I worked the next three months because my director said, Joe, please do me a favor, don't leave, give me three more months, which I did. Joey Barrero worked at FedEx before coming to XPO and knows how essential it is to get more drivers and dock workers like himself on deck. I'm busy to the time I punch in at 4 a.m. to the time I leave at 12.30. Joey is loading the freight from one trailer to the next on the dock. Then Robert will hook up the trailer and take it to its next stop. We were working 15, 16 hours a day. We were overwhelmed big time. It's a very physical job and can be difficult for people in the workforce already stretched too thin. We have to stay within the guidelines of the DOT, the hours of service, which limits the hours the driver can deliver the freight. So we're stuck between a rock and a hard place. There's a unique skill in all of this, a talent maneuvering a massive tractor trailer throughout different obstacles, like a game of perfection carefully placing each piece to its desired location with precision, a skill that deserves a lot of credit. They are the lifeblood of our company at XPO. I think the appreciation for an understanding of how difficult that work is and how important they are to the economy, it cannot be overemphasized. Dana Schaefer, ABC News. Across the country, it's clear there are thousands of new jobs. People are turning to Uber, Amazon, YouTube, and all kinds of other companies to find creative ways to make a living. But as the world of work evolves, it's also become clear that there are still a lot of businesses that have not only survived, but thrived, because they offer something technology cannot. From Kansas City, here's correspondent E.J. Becker. The spontaneity of human interaction and the human connection that often follows. You stand at the counter, and I come over, I said, ma'am, can I help you? And she said, I want to ask you a question about some heels that I have on. Do you think you can fix them? Lewis Hurt will never forget that early morning encounter in his Kansas City shoe repair shop. I had one of my workers, and he came over to me, and he hit me on the shoulder, and he said, Lewis, you know who that is sitting there? I said, well, no, it's a young lady. She wants some heels on her shoes, and I'm getting ready to do them for her. I mean, not, seriously, you don't know who they are? I said, well, who is she? And he said, that's Janet Jackson. It's Janet, Miss Jackson, if you We just kind of became real good friends instantly because she was so surprised I had 
Never seen her, didn't know who she was. From Lewis and his story of spontaneous friendship with Janet. COVID started. Uh, my mother-in-law was 96. Best thing for me to do is not live at home. To Mark Settergren and the remarkable relationships he's developed with his customers. I was invited to a customer's house to live, so I wasn't bringing COVID to the house. So there's a customer that knows me way more than just the hardware man. Mark met that customer in his family's Minneapolis hardware stores, founded 126 years ago in 1895. Mark and his business partner own three stores surrounding Lake Harriet in South Minneapolis. Each store is a reflection of the neighborhood, its people, and their homes. Each store is a little bit different because the neighborhoods are different. It's the houses, what year they were built, what style of house. So each store becomes its own little niche to that neighborhood. Hardware stores have always been a bit of a niche business, more than just hammers and nails. Mark's family's stores have always been more people-focused. I can sell paint and a hammer to anybody, but I want to know about who that person is, and we get to know that customer, finding out what's going on in their lives. That's what makes us uh, who we are, I think. You don't find that at Home Depot. Something else you can't find at a national chain, the collage of newspaper clippings on the store wall, some of them over 100 years old, telling the story of a family business there for its customers until the very end. This is from 1919, hardware, furniture, and undertaking. So we did everything back then, which was very common because we sold the lumber, made the caskets, undertaking was just part of it. Lewis Hurt has seen dramatic changes in his business too over the years. When I started, it was a lot of uh, well-made shoes. It wasn't a mass market like it is now. For 40 years, Lewis Hurt has been repairing and shining Kansas City shoes, and the shoes of those who wander in from time to time. Magic Johnson came in, Barry Manilow came in, he got on the shoe shine stand and got his shoes shined. Reggie Jackson, uh, Eddie Murphy came in, got his shoes shined. Shoe shine. What's it like talking to Eddie Murphy? <laughs> oh, he jokes all the time. The thing I think they loved about my shop was that I would treat them just like everyday people. All of us are the same. I do shoe repair, we're all making a living. And it's that approach to connecting with people that's kept the same customers coming back for four decades. Hertz started in the shoe repair business in the 80s, learning from a Russian cobbler on Kansas City's east side. Not long after that, he opened his own store in Crown Center, the world headquarters of Hallmark Cards. Today, as business continues to rebound, slowly, from the pandemic, he's confident it will thrive again, despite a throwaway clothing culture. People have shoes that they kind of like cherish. Mm -hmm. They want to keep. Sure. So I do a lot of that. Like the customer who repaired her favorite pair of shoes from Payless. Retail price, $10. Cost of repair, close to 100 Or the customer who found an expensive pair of fry boots at a thrift shop for 6 bucks. I told her I could rebuild them for $150. And that's a heck of a deal. And that's a heck of a deal. That boot she found was probably about a $400 boot. Hertz Countertop hosts repairs of one man's favorite Italian slippers, complete with an embroidered bumblebee, the occasional doggy disaster. That's the toughest job, because then you have to recreate what that dog is chewed up. And that attention to detail and caring approach toward his customers extends beyond their shoes. Like the couple who came in for a shoe repair and left with a lifelong friend. Got talking about his wife, and he was telling me she had cancer. She'd been fighting it for a couple of years. She just finished her 105th round of chemo. I came out here, held her hand, we prayed together in here, and every time she could get out of the hospital, she came here, we prayed together, spent time together, and they became so dear to me. She ended up surviving another year, 
And uh, that day before they had a funeral, I called him, prayed with him, and uh, many of them been friends ever since. So while developers may try to write an app for that, the shoe repairman and the fourth-generation hardware store owner will keep doing what they do, and their stores will continue to be the places in the neighborhood where everyone knows everyone else, stays connected, or meets Sunday morning in the hardware store parking lot for the farmer's market. It's who we are. It's the generations that taught us how to treat people. That's our biggest thing. It's not selling you the hammer. It's telling you about the hammer. It's how over 125 years later, in a world of big boxes and cardboard shipping boxes, the hardware store, the shoe repair shop, and the other mom and pops remain relevant and strong. We just keep doing what we do, and it's kind of the community hub. They come and ask me questions about what's going on in the neighborhood. You can't ask Amazon that. And maybe you can, and maybe Alexa will know the answer in a 100 years or so. E.J. Becker, ABC News, Kansas City. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. Exploring America's ever-changing workforce. This is Help Wanted, a special presentation from ABC News Radio. Here's your host, correspondent Sherry Preston. One thing the pandemic has taught us is that sometimes you have to create your own opportunities. Here's Rebecca Jarvis, Chief Business and Economics Correspondent at ABC News. There are a number of new jobs, whether they're in cannabis or green energy or digital. There are so many areas that not necessarily specifically because of the pandemic, but because of shifts have now become opportunities. It's not often that a whole new economic sector is created that provides jobs for millions of people around the world, but that's precisely what has happened with social media. Ten years ago, it wasn't really a thing. Now the amount of kids who want to grow up to be an influencer is off the charts. ABC News entertainment correspondent Jason Nathanson talked to several people from all walks of life who are using social media to follow their passions, change the world, or both. Move over movie and TV stars. Today, it's all about the TikTok stars. M, 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 M to the B. You hungry, bro? Yes. Smells like tea? Mm-hmm. Here you go, bro. I like you. Have a cupcake. I'm a potato. You're a tomato. From Charlie D'Amelio to a guy named Zach King, who does all these crazy special effects. Like my costume? Yo, that's so cool. How are you doing that? I've got a Nimbus 2000. Oh. That video of King flying on a broom like Harry Potter has over 2 billion views. Hello, everyone. It's Charlie. And Charlie D'Amelio has around 123 million followers who watch her dance to songs, do makeup tutorials, and go through stuff like getting her wisdom teeth pulled. She's often joined by her sister Dixie, who's launched a singing career off her own TikTok fame. 
As I write this, Charlie is the most followed person on TikTok. Dixie, who just turned 20, is number nine. Charlie would come home from school and she was like, oh, let me show you this TikTok I did with my friends. And I was like, what? Wait, what? And then that became more frequent. And I'm like, what is it? I was so confused. Heidi and Mark D'Amelio are Charlie and Dixie's parents. They tell me they first became aware of TikTok two years ago. Heidi was running the household, and Mark was working in the clothing business in Connecticut. Charlie, who had trained most of her life as a dancer, started posting videos of her dancing, and pretty quickly, a bunch of people were following. I remember um, uh, someone reached out to her and wanted her to do a dance to his artist's song he had just put out. And so she tells me about it, I'm like, okay, nobody's paying you to do a dance on an app that's crazy. And if anybody wants you to do anything, they can go through me. And sure enough, like five minutes later, I get an email, very legitimate. I Googled the guy, did a whole, <laughs> as a mom would do, like, who is this person? And it was very legit. And so if, I think your first one was like $75. $75 two years ago. And now both Charlie and Dixie reportedly make millions. And the whole family stars in the new Hulu reality series, The Demelio Show. I am Charlie D'Amelio. You might know me from TikTok. And that was the reason for the for the TV show is because you don't, we're getting a lot of people that were, that didn't even know what Charlie sounded like and, and, and had a lot of preconceived notions about her and Dixie. And, and so we're like, look, we're going to tell the story. Let, let's at least control it and, and go through a, a, a network. But Mark says, don't expect the Real Housewives of TikTok. Because we said, look, we're not going to be a salacious flip table kind of, we're, that's not our family. That's not to say there aren't dramatic moments. Charlie and Dixie have built these careers that are very public. And we all know the internet can be a brutal place. Negative comments are part of the job. And many say that's the price you pay for putting yourself out there. At the end of episode one, we see the toll that negativity takes on Dixie and it's heartbreaking. She breaks down in heaving sobs over mean comments on a video that was posted about her. Her parents trying to console their distraught daughter. All we're trying to do is have some fun and make sure social media doesn't destroy our lives. The Demelios are all executive producers on the series and could have said, take that out. But Heidi says Dixie wanted to make sure her breakdown was left in. But she said, no, I, I think people need to see that. How much of it is a struggle for you guys though that the very thing that is making a living for the family and um and and fun right at the same time this thing is one of the main sources of their anxiety and trouble we keep an eye on it and i do like to make it let the girls know like look it, we can't unwind things in a second but because there are contractual obligations and things like that but we definitely if charlie came to me tomorrow and said dad i'm, I'm done we would figure out how she would be she would be done I think so many parents are going to feel what we feel. And Mark says there's a silver lining because, yes, with all the fame comes attention and scrutiny and bullying. But it also comes with a massive platform, a platform they can use not just to make a living. I do think that it is worth the 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 anxiety and the, and the, men, and the mental health struggles. Um, I don't want to speak for the girls, but for, for us, just because we can do so many things with, with, with charities. And we have a, a voice and a platform that we take really seriously. And, and if that platform is TikTok, a lot of other people are also using it to make a living. So my name is Forrest Jones and I review cars for a living. 
Imagine what Lenny Kravitz might look like if he sold cars, and that's Forrest Jones. What is up, guys? Right behind me is the 2023 Cadillac Lyric, and this is the new future of Cadillac. Jones has around 3 million followers on TikTok who watches charming, friendly car review videos. So the Lyric is Cadillac's very first fully electric SUV. I met him in Orange County, California, at a park on a hill overlooking the Pacific Ocean, where he was very excited to show me his current loaner, the 2021 Chevy Corvette Convertible. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, dude. Jones tells me he fell into doing car reviews kind of by accident. I used to live in Texas, and I was selling cars at this Mazda dealership. And people hate going into car dealerships. Like, they absolutely hate it. So I would have a lot of people messaging me and saying, hey, can you just do a quick video of the outside of the inside? The requests were so frequent that he decided to just post his stuff to YouTube so he could share a link with anyone who asked. And I think a month later, one of my coworkers was like, dude, I saw your video on YouTube in my recommended, and it had like 500,000 views. And I was like, no way. So Mazda Corporate took notice, and a third-party company they hooked him up with said, you're pretty good at this. Would you want to come work with other car brands? He was thinking of leaving the dealership anyway. Cars was my passion. Selling cars was a whole is a whole other deal, man. So we said, let's do it. And then from there, I think it was Volvo that reached out to me next, then Toyota Lexus, and then the more followers I got, the more brands that would basically be willing to send me cars. His YouTube channel was gaining subscribers, topping 50,000, and he was making money from ads, but not enough to pay the bills. So from there, I still had to work a full-time job. I was actually working at my church, like fixing light bulbs, cleaning toilets. Like literally, that's what I was doing. But after a while, he realized if he wanted to do the reviews full-time, he needed to devote himself to it full-time. So he and his wife decided to move from Texas to California. He says it's easier to get cooler cars to review out here, which means more views. And he had a side gig lined up with Kelly Blue Book. They got here in February 2020. Then COVID hit. YouTube views plunged, and his job with Kelly went away. Oh, we're both freaking out. We're out here in the middle of a pandemic, something we've never imagined. No family, no friends. Our main source of income had just got cut by like 75%. And so just trying to take our minds off of stuff, that's when, you know, TikTok came along. And so we're scrolling through and we're just like... And had you ever, had you been on TikTok before? No, I heard about it and I was like, this is such a joke. Until we got on there and I was like, oh man, like Gordon Ramsay's on here. I was the first person I saw when I got on. I was like, okay, Gordon Ramsay's on here. It's got some sort of credibility. Chicken nugget parmesan. What? Chicken nugget parmesan. But after watching Gordon Ramsay get disgusted by someone's cooking skills for the hundredth time, Jones went searching for something different. So I was like just looking for casual car content. And I was like, I don't see anything on here. Uh, and I was talking to my wife and I was like, you know, I may try to make videos on here, see how it does, but it's gonna have to be dramatically different from what I do on YouTube. YouTube was like 30 minute videos, fully in depth, all the details, like there's no time for that. Um, so my idea was, let me just talk about cars the way I talk about cars to my friends. After some experimentation and a couple of flops, one of his videos went viral. It was, it was a Honda Odyssey minivan, a minivan. And that thing did like five million views. First video, second video I did another like three million views. And I was like, a minivan? And after that, the secret world of TikTok opened up to him. Once you get a certain amount of views, you're put in the creator fund, which means you actually get paid for views. But Joan says the money isn't great, a fraction of what he would make for the same views on YouTube. But he would soon learn the real money isn't in views. What really has made this sustainable is just a mix of different brand deals. People saying, hey, if you shout us out in your video, we'll like give you like X amount of money or, or whatever. Um, 
and then just like merchandise sales and things like that. That's really where most of my income comes from. So he wears a sweatshirt from Brand X in a video. He mentions a cleaning product. Can I ask how much money you're making now? Um, I'll keep it down low right now, but it is easily enough for my wife and I to sustain ourselves living in Orange County, which is an impressive feat just in and of itself. <laughs> Joan's life didn't follow the path he thought it would, and neither did Shirley Rain's. Welcome to Skid Row in downtown Los Angeles. It's about as far away as you can get from the world of dance videos and car reviews on social media, one of the most dangerous and destitute places in the country, where an already devastated homeless population has been further marginalized because of the pandemic. And it's here where Shirley Rains puts the power of her social media following to work. We come out as a team every Saturday and feed over 500 people, about 500 people. And then I come out on Tuesdays on my own and feed another couple hundred from my car. And then sometimes I come on either a Wednesday or Thursday, some two to three times a week. Wow. Yeah. Where do you get all the food from? We are fully funded by our social media followers, Instagram, uh, Facebook, TikTok, you know, Twitter. For blocks and blocks, there are people living in tents or makeshift sidewalk structures, many deep in the throes of unchecked mental illness, drug abuse, or extreme poverty. But on this drizzly summer Saturday, Reigns is out here showing them that they're not forgotten, passing out food, toiletries, flip-flops, tents if she has them. Thank you guys for waiting. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for waiting. You want to win, queen? and also offering hair washing, styling, color, braids, whatever her volunteers can provide. The beauty services are very important. That's pretty much how we started. Um, of course, food and stuff is necessities, but beauty is uh, more of a want sometimes versus a need, and they have a right to want to have their wants met. Rigo is one of those with wants. Uh, just a regular cut. He's a full head of thick black and silver hair, and he tells me he's needed a haircut for about six months. It's going to make me feel more like a person when I clean up myself. Cutting Rigo's hair this morning is Jamal, a professional barber who linked up with Reigns thanks to social media. I've been following her for a few years, and I reached out and I said, hey, is there any way that I can provide my services? He's been coming out every Saturday he can for the past few months, and Rigo is grateful to be sitting in Jamal's chair. We're hurting so bad, man, in the streets, uh, and I really love these people, man, that they're treating me like a person. I really, uh, this is a blessing to my life, man, to have you guys over here and helping me out. I lost everything in the COVID, man. My wife, my kids, it hurts. You honestly never know what people are going through, and if it were me, I would want somebody to be able to help me as well. So I want to do what I can to be sure these people out here are taken care of. Can't help everybody, but you got to start somewhere. And that's just what Shirley Rains has done with Beauty to the Streets, a nonprofit she runs full time now after spending 26 years as a medical biller. She has a large social media presence, her biggest numbers on TikTok with around 3 million followers. Okay, so I took you out of Sam's Club with me today. Last time I left... Social media um, sponsors all of this. I mean, without social media, we wouldn't be here, you know? Um, they're the ones that we, we get donations from. You know, if we are short on water, I'm having a hard time because there's no tents or sleeping bags or blankets. If I take to social media, all of a sudden, you know, they're sharing and sharing and sharing, and then we've got some people who have large platforms sharing, and all of a sudden, we have the things that we were missing. Why you? Why, did you, why do you take this on and you feel like it's your need to do this to help out? Uh, because I can, because I'm good at it and I can. Not everybody does that. 
Uh, not everybody's broken like I'm broken. Not everybody needs the help that, you know, that I once needed and wasn't able to get. Can I ask when you say that you're broken, what do you, what does that mean for you? Um, you know, I lost my son uh, many years ago. Um, I suffer from panic and anxiety disorder, PTSD, you know, um, survivor's remorse. I lost his father years after that. I, I, I consider myself broken because a huge part of me is gone. Like, I didn't know how to cope with that. I never went to therapy. Um, I kind of became this person that nobody wanted to talk to, nobody wanted to deal with. I had problems. People thought I was mean and evil. And it just kind of resembles the character that people place on the homeless. Like, I'm like, they look like and act like I used to act when I was going through a lot of stuff. This is the new Shirley. And I have to adapt to it. Just like and she adapted when she lost her full-time job and decided to go full-time with Beauty to the Streets, though it hasn't been easy. I have no medical. I have no dental. I feel like I'm damn near in poverty myself. I don't make just barely covers the bills. I don't get what I used to get when I was a medical biller, but I'm happier than I was when I was a medical biller. That's what I was wondering. Yeah, I'm way happier. Like, now I can make sense of my life and my pain. Another way Reigns makes sense of her pain is through bold color. Her eyelids this morning painted a dazzling green and yellow. Her hair always something bright. She says that makes her feel good, snaps her out of her funk, as do her clothes. Today, it's a Wonder Woman t-shirt. It's a black Wonder Woman shirt. I feel like representation matters. So when I come out here, I'm always wearing like either MLK or Malcolm X or Harriet Tubman or like shirts that say 100 inventions created by black people or something powerful because I think a lot of times living on the streets or being in a humble situation depletes people's power sometimes. And I think we have to just remind them how, how strong our roots and our soil are that we come from as a people. Do you feel like Wonder Woman? Hell no. Hell no. If I had Wonder Woman powers, I would take that last of the truth and I would have already knew my baby daddy wasn't no good before I had them kids, boo. Hell no. I would use that last of the truth on three baby daddies, okay? The man that I love that didn't love me back. I mean, Wonder Woman had a great body, okay? She had an invisible jet. Let's be real. Wonder Woman was popping. You know what I'm saying? No. Definitely not Wonder Woman, okay? Out here to a lot of these people, I think you are Wonder Woman. I don't think I am. You know, if I do something that's like a Wonder Woman, yeah, I want Wonder Woman credit. But feeding people and doing hair and all these things are just, it's a humane thing to do. I don't, I'm not doing anything extra fabulous. You know, we're not doing anything like out of, outstanding or out of this world. We're literally feeding people who are hungry. We're giving somebody something to drink when they're thirsty. We're cutting people hair who need a haircut. It's what you're supposed to do. People doing what they're supposed to do. That, I think, is the common thread running between those I've talked to who have found a way to turn social media into a job that can sustain them. The teen dancer, the car salesman from Texas, the former medical biller trying to fix her broken self and others at the same time. They're all people doing what they feel they're supposed to do. They didn't start by saying, I'm going to be a star. They started by wanting to share their passion with the world. And people followed. Jason Athenson, ABC News. Los Angeles. You're listening to Help Wanted, a special presentation from ABC News Radio. We've all learned to do things during the pandemic online. We've gone to concerts, even seen museum exhibits through our computers. But nothing takes the place of having a real live piece of memorabilia right in front of your eyes. And it takes a special kind of skill to not just preserve what's in a frame, but as ABC's Matt Wolf reports, to preserve the memories and a little bit of history, too. 
The first thing you're hit with when you walk into Long Island Picture Frame and Art Gallery, well, for a music and pop culture junkie like myself, this is heaven on earth. We do so much music stuff. Uh, Beatle contracts, which were in the $40,000, $50,000 range. Led Zeppelin signed pieces, Frank Sinatra, concert used Pearl Jam items. I mean, I, somebody just brought in an item. It was a letter written to Eddie Vedder's uh, grandmother from Eddie, explaining to his grandmother how much she, she meant to him and was inspirational in his career. Meet Jim Perna, owner and president of this thriving operation here in Massapequa, New York. He compares his business to the popular swap show Pawn Stars, but with a little bit of a twist. We're like Pawn Stars backwards. People walk into Pawn Stars and they want to sell things. People walk into Long Island Picture Frame, they want to preserve things. And for all the countless items that come through here, that preservation starts in what Jim calls the chop shop. Okay, whoa, careful. <laughs> right under the showroom, there's plenty of measuring and cutting happening here. Look out, better wear your safety goggles. Jim employing a team of five skilled craftsmen, including mat specialist Brent Wicks. Okay, this is a Wizard International uh, mat cutting machine. So you plug in your coordinates there and then... Cuts it for you. So for you, what more or less keeps all of this from becoming monotonous, day in, day out? Well, I think there's a lot of different things that we deal with. Um, you see all these different things that no one gets to see. Right. You know, whether it's autographs or photographs or artwork. or And then you end up with orders that are, you know, quantities of 100 and, you know, it gets a little repetitive. But, yeah. It's it's the ones that it's the ones that fall in between that keep it all fresh, you know. Back upstairs, Jim tells me the real magic happens the moment a customer walks in with an item and an idea. That's where vision takes over. You can't teach this. You can't go to school for it. You can go to school for measuring. You can go to school for cutting frames, but you can't go to school for design. You have to have an eye for it. And I think if you if you're passionate about it. You come up with good designs. Jim has been doing this for close to 40 years now. He's sold, framed, and auctioned off just about everything under the sun. It's his life's work, but sometimes passion doesn't necessarily translate into easy. I'm working on a piece right now that I'm really having a tough time with. Well, it's the actual piece of meat from Rocky One. So when you see the opening scene when Sylvester Stallone is talking to Paulie in the meat locker... You know that, Paulie, because you got a big mouth. You know, you just talk too much. All of the meat in that meat locker is real except for one piece, the piece that Rocky's hitting. <coughs> and it's made out of a foam, and it's the size of a cow. And one of my customers want me to frame this to put it on his wall. Wow. The cow is 40 inches wide by 96 inches in height by about 15 inches in, in, in thickness. I, I mean, how did you even get it, it, something like that, into the store? Well, the, the, the fun thing about it was when we were carrying it in in a, in a, uh, in a tarp and the leg was hanging out <laughs> and, it was, and it was four Italians walking down the block with it. And, and right next door is Enterprise and they were busy that day and they see us walking with this they could have been anything. It could have been a cow. It could have been a person. It was actually comical. You just can't make this stuff up, really. <laughs> so back in 2018, thanks to places like Long Island Picture Frame and Art Gallery, the custom framing industry was generating a healthy $2 billion in annual revenue. Things were on a roll for owner Jim Perna, even in 2019. It was probably one of our better years um, that we've had in a long time. It was on the right track. Uh, people were spending money. And we all know what happens next. 
And then when the pandemic hit, you know, you're like, oh, my God, everything now just tanked. And like many other independently owned businesses, Long Island Picture Frame was faced with tough choices. The pandemic actually helped me uh, in a way to really rethink how I did business. Let me pause and say, what am I doing wrong? It gave me a little bit of time, a little bit of breathing room to say, hey, wait a minute. What else can I be doing? And I actually revamped my business. How so? You know, some of the businesses that we were doing business for wasn't really the right business for us. Um, and it's almost like you go back to, to your roots and what's important. And during that time, thanks to lockdown and more and more people following work from home mandates, business took a turn for the better. My um, phone was ringing off the hook. You guys open, you guys open. Yeah, so a lot of people dropped things off at my front door. I Zoom roomed them, I FaceTimed them, I took digital images, and we, that's how we did business for a solid six to eight months. But I realized that people were really into, I'm home, home offices. People were pulling photographs out of closets because they had to clean closets and attics and basements. So they were pulling stuff out that they haven't seen in years. People like me who bought in every Star Trek poster, every Marvel movie print, paintings my dad did back in the day. Thanks to you with all the stuff that you bought, I was able to buy a Cadillac. <laughs> now, all kidding aside, yes, I am a regular customer here watching quite a bit of my paycheck grow wings and kind of just fly out the window. But for myself and many of Jim's customers, it's not just a monitor investment. It's keeping intact priceless memories that link us to family, a cool moment from another part of our lives, a favorite baseball player, actor, whatever it might be, there's an emotional factor to all of this. It could be stuff from a four-year-old drawing of a Father's Day card, a signed photo of Ray Liotta from Goodfellas. As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. We have a customer that comes in that brings all space memorabilia. So some of his collection is in the thousands. Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. For the eyes of the world, now look into space. Godspeed, John Glenn. The amount of items is countless, probably. I've brought in NASA Apollo back to some of the Mercury astronauts. That is Robert Germano, self-proclaimed space enthusiast and collector of all things that fly above 300,000 feet, many of which found their way into Jim's shop. My biggest piece that Jim ever did for me, and my holy grail is the uh, Apollo 11, which included the signatures of all three astronauts, including Neil Armstrong. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for man. A piece of their ship, the piece could be in a museum. It, this is literally a part of history, isn't it? Absolutely. It's, 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 it's the history of the human race. And he wants that history to stay put right here on Earth. These are not for sale. These are going to be passed down as an inheritance to my, my family. My son loves my collection. I told him, I said, listen, when I go, don't put this out for a garage sale. <laughs> so whether it's something of historical note, rock and roll, an obscure document, autograph diploma, or a super rare film lobby print drawn by 70s advertising and movie poster artist Bob Peake for Star Trek The Motion Picture, but I digress. Jim is a big fan of all of it. People come in here, I'm passionate about their stuff. I'm passionate about it. I want to show excitement so they're excited. A lot of times people come back in here when they pick it up, uh, and we call it, you know, the reveal. And it's, it's Christmas to them. 
Let's talk about the future. You know, in spite of more challenges, changing situations every single day uh, being shoveled in front of you as a business owner, are things still looking up? Do I think things are bright? Of course they are. I, I think the picture framing business is is growing. So if, if there's another shutdown, you're just going to have to rethink on how you're going to do your business again and not sit back. I mean, look at restaurants. What did they do? They turned around. They ramped up their, their delivery service. It's just like everything else. you got to figure out a way. If you're an entrepreneur, you'll figure out a way. If you have the passion, you'll figure out a way. If you have the desire and you have the fight, you'll figure out a way. After years of lawsuits and fights with the NCAA, college athletes got a slam dunk earlier this year when the Supreme Court handed down a unanimous decision allowing student athletes to benefit financially from their name, image, and likeness, all while studying and competing for their schools. The new rules went into effect just over two months ago, and even in that short amount of time, some college athletes have come up with very creative ways to cash in. From Kansas City, here's reporter E.J. Becker. If you could get paid to go to a birthday party, you'd do it, right? That seemingly bizarre idea is actually one of the many ways college athletes are finally cashing in on name, image, and likeness. So for the first appearance, I actually went to a, a little kid's birthday party. Christian Brown is a starting guard for the University of Kansas basketball team. Had a lot of fun, played some basketball, signed some autographs, took some pictures. And Christian was paid handsomely for his time, effort, and personality. And the personalities and creativity of college athletes are on full display now more than ever. So there's everything from things like showing up to a kid's birthday party. There was a player who got a deal because he has a cute puppy he puts on Instagram that now they get free dog food. Dan Murphy works with ESPN's investigative unit, and he's been following the battle over name, image, and likeness in college sports since well before the U.S. Supreme Court stripped the ball from the NCAA earlier this year, cleared the field of obstacles, and told college athletes they could run that ball back without penalty. You know, entire offensive lines signing a deal with local barbecue joints in order to go get free food on Friday nights, all the way up to multi-million dollar Fortune 50 companies signing deals with athletes. Don't just do every deal that comes across your phone. Jim Myers is an attorney in Kansas City working with athletes like Christian Brown. He's telling his clients to be patient and choosy and to be aware of their strengths and look for opportunities that fit them. Christian's fairly comfortable with um, communicating with adults and talking and so his preference rather than jam up his social media with product post is to interact with people and I think it's going to benefit him in the long run I think it will be just as financially viable so with the biggest hurdle cleared and college students now able to profit off their popularity while keeping their scholarships and eligibility they're faced with a whole new balancing act adding what for some can be a highly profitable business to practice classes studying games and just being a college kid. Christian Brown, though, seems to be very clear on his priorities. You have a lot of kids that, that kind of get lost in trying to make money I and mean, worry about the deals or worry about shipping stuff out when the product is still the basketball player. And that's, you know, what, what my team's here to help me with is just, you know, to make sure everything's straight. Standout athletes can clearly cash in. But in 2021, Dan Murphy says having another talent in addition to athleticism can pay off like never before. There's a group of athletes that have just become huge social media influencers, not so much because they're great on the field or the court, but because they're really good at understanding how to build an audience on TikTok or Instagram. 
And those folks stand to make more money than maybe even the superstar athletes. He also thinks that it won't just be the soccer star, the quarterback, or the next LeBron James finding dollars knocking at the door. There will be a lot of athletes in smaller college sports that stand to make a lot of money. And I think the poster child for that is going to be Suni Lee, who just won the gold medal for all-around gymnastics in Tokyo. But now she can be on the Wheaties box or in the McDonald's commercial and also still go and compete for her school. But it's not all smooth sailing for athletes. Just like in a game, they'll have to keep from committing fouls. Some of the people that are paying these athletes for name and likeness purposes probably don't know they're going to send a 1099. Attorney Jim Myers says taxes have to be top of mind for these kids because some of them, perhaps for the first time in their lives, are going to owe. Boosters and the money they have to spread around are another potential pitfall, and schools themselves have rules too. Myers worries that some of the universities aren't supporting athletes like they should. I think it's incumbent upon these athletic departments to educate their students on what they can and can't do, and potentially what they should and shouldn't do. But as Dan Murphy points out, universities are still trying to figure stuff out. Like, are they about to see a drop in one of their most important sources of revenue, donations? I think the one thing that administrators have been most concerned about is that boosters, people that might donate funds directly to an athletic department, may now try to to funnel that money instead to athletes, and, and they would lose out on that front. So while Christian Brown goes about preparing for another season, another semester of learning, and perhaps a paycheck or two from a tailgate appearance, in the back of his mind... He's thinking about the one deal he really wants. I'm really big into into video games, so something like a Call of Duty, Twitch, uh, PlayStation, one of those things, that's something that I'm really interested in. In the meantime, he'll keep knocking down threes for KU while new opportunities come knocking at his door. E.J. Becker, ABC News, Kansas City. Married moms in the suburbs. They've been called soccer moms. They've been called security moms. Pamela Wilk is a so-called soccer mom. Those so-called Walmart moms. She calls herself a hockey mom. I love those hockey moms. The hockey mom trying to connect with the soccer moms. In the 1990s, the idea of soccer moms as the quintessential swing voter took hold. Elections could be won or lost based on a candidate's ability to appeal to them. But were quote-unquote soccer moms actually the deciding factor? In a new series on the 538 Politics podcast, we take a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the campaign throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. Exploring America's ever-changing workforce. This is Help Wanted, a special presentation from ABC News Radio. Here's your host, correspondent Sherry Preston. It's pretty rare to find a job these days that literally was against the law just a decade ago. But as more and more states legalize the recreational use of marijuana, employment is opening up for those interested in growing, cultivating, and selling cannabis. 18 states have legalized recreational pot, and 18 states now have job openings in the industry, including Massachusetts. 
If you drive about two and a half hours north of New York City, or about two and a half hours west of Boston, you'll be in the heart of the Berkshires. This lovely stretch of western Massachusetts is known for its rolling hills, summer farmers markets, Tanglewood, the summer home of the Boston Symphony Orchestra, and the Norman Rockwell Museum. He lived the last 25 years of his life in Stockbridge, a town nestled in the heart of the Berkshire Hills. It was this community he used as a setting again and again for his illustrations of life in America. The Berkshires aren't just known for bucolic settings and peaceful afternoons these days, though. The small towns that make up this area are also becoming known for their cannabis dispensaries. There are several along Route 7 from Sheffield, Massachusetts, stretching up through the town of Great Barrington and into Pittsfield, the county seat of Berkshire County. In 2016, Massachusetts voters approved a bill decriminalizing the recreational use of marijuana, and that's when the dispensary started popping up. Michaela Trathaway is dispensary manager at a large barn-like structure called The Pass. She explained the rules to me when I visited last month. Um, You can get an ounce per day. Everything that you purchase from us has to legally be consumed in a safe and private location within Massachusetts. There's a lot of regulations. You can't take photos really in the facility of people or products or prices. You can't take phone calls in the facility. That's another thing people don't really realize, Um, but the cameras might interpret that as you're calling someone and asking them what they would like, and everything that you purchase has to be for you. The pass is what's known as a vertically integrated facility. Michaela also had to explain that to me. So it just means that we manufacture our own products and then we sell them out our door. So a lot of the things that you'll buy in the dispensary are made right out back um, or grown right out back, and then they're processed by our team, and then they're put out for sale and sold by our team. When you're talking about growing, manufacturing, and selling a relatively new product, though, you're also talking about jobs, and this company has provided lots of them. Um, I know we just purchased our third facility. It's going to be a processing and packaging facility. So yeah, that new facility will start out about adding 30 full-time jobs. And that's in addition to the dozens of well-paying jobs they've already brought to the community. Starting pay at the pass is between $15 and $17 an hour and caps out at about $21 an hour. Chris Weld is founder of Berkshire Wellco, parent company of the pass. He says the industry has changed monumentally, even just over the past 12 months. A year and a bit ago, 30% of the nation was voting in favor of legalizing cannabis, and now it's 60%. And there are very, very few issues that change that quickly. And when you go into our retail shop here, it's not uncommon to have, you know, the four stations taken up by people in their 70s. Weld also owns a small distillery down that same Route 7 and says the decision to open here was a smart one, both for him and, he thinks, the community. The uh, canatourism component of the Berkshires is huge at the moment. But I've read stuff that says sort of the model is that for every dollar that is spent on cannabis in a community, it's actually bringing in $3 in revenue because people will come up and they'll buy gas and they'll go out and they'll buy a sandwich and they'll, oh, we'll spend the night in a hotel and we want to go to Tanglewood and um, fortunately they go to the distillery down the road or whatever it may be, but the, the traffic and the tourism has definitely benefited and I think when a town looks at the risk cost benefit of allowing a cannabis company come in that's certainly part of the formula right what else is it bringing into our community and i have to say uh every time knock on wood i talk to our chief of police and i say what have you heard about us he goes nothing i said great 
That's perfect. That's what we want. Now, hold on a minute. If you think that opening up a cannabis dispensary in the area that welcomes cannabis dispensaries is easy, these businesses are regulated to the max. The product is highly taxed, and people in the community are watching closely. Alexander Farnsworth is founder of the upscale Farnsworth Fine Cannabis along Main Street in Great Barrington, Massachusetts. His store is much smaller, with wood-paneled walls and the feel of a candy store, almost like if Willy Wonka sold tinctures, edibles, cannabis-infused drinks, and flour, which is the pot itself. They also sell hand-rolled single-fine cannabis cigarettes for $13 a piece and gold and diamond pot-leaf necklaces for $18.95. That's $1,895. What is interesting is, you know, half of our customers come in and say perhaps this is the the nicest store they've ever been into in their lives. Um, And then the other half, you know, who are coming from Tribeca feel right at home because it's certainly a shop that you could find in New York, London, Paris, Tokyo. And I love that it's of that caliber, but located here in Great Barrington in kind of the middle of nowhere Berkshires because I think it makes it feel just a bit more special and unexpected. Is your overhead a lot? Are you finding it easier, harder, or the same as you thought it would be when you originally had this idea back in 2012? Well, it's definitely taken much longer than expected. Um, It's certainly more fulfilling than expected. But the hardest part in terms of overhead really is the tax liabilities and the tax restrictions. Farnsworth's great-great-uncle was Philo T. Farnsworth, the inventor of the first all-electric television. The store is lined with his family's antique radio collection. Unlike the past, Farnsworth does not grow its own plants. They bring their product in from nearby grow farms. Um, This Berkshire region is going to become known for its sun-grown outdoor cannabis, and a lot of that will start to hit the shelves in October, November. The cannabis industry has brought jobs to the area, certainly, but it's also brought revenue. Taxes on marijuana products have gone to the local community, and 3% of gross sales at dispensaries goes to the Great Barrington Community Impact Fund. That's been set up to offset any negative ramifications of marijuana use. This year, they're doling out $350,000 to various groups focusing on health and safety education, social engagement, infrastructure, criminal justice, and on enhancing the town's reputation. According to a city press release, quote, as one of the first towns in Massachusetts with dispensaries, Great Barrington has earned substantial attention for the prominence of this business sector. Chris Weld, owner of the past, loves the area and the people, but he knows the more shops that move in and the jobs they create might not be around forever, especially with recreational laws changing in nearby New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut. I mean, it's a nascent industry. It's still got the gold rush mentality, um, and I think it still has some legs. But that being said, uh, when small towns have four or five dispensaries, you know, They're not going to sell four or five times as much cannabis in that town just because they have more dispensaries. They might sell 1.5 times as much cannabis. So it's going to be, there'll be a shakedown, I think, at some point in the industry. For now, though, the pass, Farnsworth Fine Cannabis, Theory Wellness, Revell, Calix Berkshire, and several other shops in the area remain in friendly competition for customers as they provide a new kind of job for the region. For many people, it's been home sweet job for more than a year, but that's changing. Even with shifting timelines because of the virus and variants, a lot of people will soon be headed back to their desks. 
And your office manners may need a little refresher course. ABC's Daria Albinger got some tips from a pro. Sherry, this is what it sounds like in a barn. It's a safe assumption that at some point in your childhood, your mother or father asked you if you were born and raised in one. In case you don't know what that means, it's a common expression, especially in the South where I grew up, that suggests you aren't behaving appropriately. And now with a lot of people returning to the office after working at home for more than a year, your boss may be wondering the very same thing. You guys have got to be crazy busy right now with complaints and bosses, questions about how do we navigate this new workforce? Yeah, we certainly have. And they relate to all the typical areas of management and reintegration you might expect. But the one that I think is surprising to us as well as to the managers and bosses calling us are the behavior and the conduct issues that they're facing specifically from the returning employees who really have to readjust on a number of levels. Philip Weiss is president of CyFarth at Work, a legal compliance and workplace consulting services company. It's not as though we can expect everyone to snap back. We also have to navigate a new path because people will need different kinds of support, accommodations, an ear to listen to them. So all that is part of this bigger picture. Having said that, We do find that when you ask employees confidentially, what do they want now that they're back at work? Uh, Beyond some more flexibility, beyond more of this sort of work-life balance, working in different places, what they say overwhelmingly is, I want to reconnect to being a successful team worker. He says the top complaint from bosses is insubordination. What we found is people who cherished the ability to manage their day to set their agenda, which was frankly necessary during remote work, are really chafing at this in-person supervision. So they're being told what to say, which is understandable if they're being inappropriate, but they're also being told exactly what to do, which is frankly what they were expected to follow before COVID. And in one case, uh, an employee who really had been very autonomous during remote work was so upset at being told what to do that she turned to her manager, this is at a a financial firm that we now help, and said, you know what, lay off, you're not the boss of me. And the manager looked at her and said, well, in fact, I am the boss of you. That might be something we have to revisit as a reality between us, but certainly managers who themselves are readjusting, who themselves are reacclimating, need to be firmer, clearer, and focused on expectations. What are you finding the most common things that people are doing when they return to work that they have to learn to undo? A a lot. These reunited employees are letting loose much more than uh, anyone would have expected. And and that letting loose falls into three or four key categories. Uh, One of those categories is what we might refer to as uh, insults. Employees really crossing the line, uh, whether it's nicknames, jokes. In one instance, in fact, at a graphics company, the newly reunited employees were circulating a spreadsheet on which they ranked their uh, co-workers who had come back by who had either aged the most or expanded the most physically while away during COVID. And that resulted in a threat of a lawsuit because over half the returning employees were offended. So 
you're seeing all kinds of examples of that sort. Okay, I have to ask why. I mean, because over the last couple of years, we have been taught, if nothing else, that what used to be, I don't want to use the word appropriate, but used to be tolerated in the workforce, you know, when it comes to personal conduct, is no longer tolerated anymore. How did we forget so quickly? We didn't forget quickly. We forgot over a 12-month span. When we were in these private pods sort of ensconced while we were on Zoom and had to sort of control ourselves for those periods when we were actually engaging with colleagues, most of the day was with people with whom we were far more casual and far more familiar. And one employee told us in a recent training session, I feel like I'm told you were able to do whatever you wanted, whenever you wanted most of the day, and now to censor myself for an eight-hour day to maintain professionalism throughout that period is just too much to ask of me, particularly the day I arrive. And why says that may mean going back to square one? If you're a boss, you have to reset all of the expectations that you would set for a brand new day one employee. You want to give your employees a little bit of time to acclimate to that. Not so much time that patterns become entrenched, reorientation, training sessions, where employees who've come back together and are now live can share with each other kind of the lines that they find to be important in terms of appropriate, risky, or offensive conduct are so important because that way they hear it from each other. You haven't seen these people in a long time. You have some stories that you want to share, but there is a limit, isn't there, that you should place on these things? Absolutely. There, there is a limit. And, and you're right. Uh, something like being curious being interested. I mean, that goes with this notion that we have to better connect with colleagues. So that's kind of part of the zeitgeist of the world that we're in right now. 40 to 45% of the companies calling us for help are saying, as you put it, it's this TMI issue. We have employees saying, well, you know, I heard that COVID really took a toll on your marriage. That's the word. Tell me all about it. Not the kind of question they would have asked in such a cavalier manner a year and a half ago. And then other people are going even farther, sharing their own business. At a um, marketing firm that we uh, are now helping, uh, somebody at the very first in-person team meeting uh, said to his colleagues, you know what, I've got to share all the deets on my Friday night date, because it's the first date I've been on in like 11 months. No, you you don't. You don't have to share that. That's right. Well, that's exactly what he heard. Because I think to a person, the response was, we don't want any deets on any of your dates because that's not the kind of relationship that we have here at work. So he really missed uh, the memo and the cue and the self-guiding principles that you have to check yourself before you re-enter the workplace. So with that in mind, maybe a good rule of thumb is that to remember you're going to work. You are going to a frat party. There are Reddit streams where employees are bemoaning what they walk back into. Colleagues who have made the transition back are sharing their horror stories. And what we hear is, how come I feel like I'm not returning to work? I'm re-entering a seventh grade rowdy classroom, or as you just said, a frat party. So we are seeing different reactions, but enough of these conduct violations, so to speak, to really make a mark on the companies. Which brings up another rule of thumb. It isn't just how you act, it's what you wear. 
Weiss says even those of us who have been going into the office during the pandemic have given the term business casual a whole new meaning. We're going to kind of have to rethink our comportment too, aren't we? Yes. Dress code, so to speak, or dress is a really great example. And the reality is that while we know we need to adjust in some ways, we may not need to adjust in every way or every day. And retaining some of that personal expression, that casual attire, that ability to check in and out but still be productive, all of that is part of the new reality. Well, that certainly is good news. And if you're thinking about this back-to-work thing being harder than you'd expected, consider this. Many companies are seriously considering going to a four-day work week. But that's another story for another time. For now, I need to change out of these kicks and practice walking in heels again. Low ones, of course. You're listening to Help Wanted, a special presentation from ABC News Radio. If you want to go into a profession like banking, you might assume you will need a bachelor's degree. But maybe not. Maybe that thinking is shifted, too, as the cost of attending a university rises even further. And some say it's simply not worth it. Here's ABC's Elizabeth Schulze. When 19-year-old Wilkins Sanchez moved to the U.S. from the Dominican Republic, he was eager to land a job that made use of his computer skills, applying to positions in call centers, office administration, and anything else in between. There was one time that I applied 25 times in one week, and the 25 applications I submitted were rejected, all of them. He says there was a common refrain among employers unwilling to give him a look. He didn't have a college degree. And I feel confident uh, of myself that, okay, I applied for this. I know how to do the job. But because I didn't have a college degree at that time, I didn't even get uh, an interview. Eight years later, Sanchez is now a cybersecurity specialist in Rhode Island. All it took to get there, he says, was one company choosing to give him a chance. Within the first few weeks, within the first few months, I was able to, you know, show them that I knew what I was doing. Waiving degree requirements is a chance a growing number of companies are willing to take amid the so-called worker shortage. Just like it's a seller's market in real estate, it's an employee market in the workforce right now. Tracy Burns is the CEO of the Northeast HR Association, an organization of more than 2,000 human resources professionals. As we've moved through both the pandemic and then just through, again, the war for talent, we've seen that that four-year degree, sometimes they don't even have a degree that's related to the work that they're doing oftentimes. Burns says dropping degree requirements had already been a trend in some industries like technology. But now the trend is intensifying because of COVID and because of the war for talent. Job search platform ZipRecruiter estimated the number of postings on its site requiring college degrees or five plus years of experience has been cut in half amid the labor shortage. Pharmacy chain CVS Health announced last month it won't even require high school degrees for most entry-level roles as the company competes to find workers. It's welcome news for Byron Agiste, an economist who served on the National Economic Council under former President Obama. From where I sit, I see a lot of change among companies. He's now the CEO of Opportunity at Work, a nonprofit that matches employers with workers and advocates for removing college degree requirements. We really are excluding an enormous talent pool um, in the United States when you just arbitrarily put a bachelor's degree screen to say, hey, we don't even want to know what you have to offer if you don't already have a college degree. He says 60% of Americans in the workforce don't currently have a bachelor's degree, a number that's even higher among African-American and Latino workers. We're turning college from what it should be, which is a bridge to opportunity, 
into something more like a drawbridge, which we pull up behind the people who have it and keep the others on the outside. Aguiz says there's no doubt some jobs require certifications or more advanced degrees, think careers in medicine or law. But he says the reason why bachelors are required for other roles is something of an accident. As job search got online, well now instead of 30 job applications for a job, you know, you might have hundreds. And so it's to be fair to employers, they have to find some way of limiting the number that they had to evaluate. And so they used keywords, a variety of keywords, but one of the most common was bachelor's degrees. And once that started going, it just sort of snowballed. The reality is in technology, and not only with cybersecurity, is that uh, many of those jobs, you can learn them in, in, in your own time at home. You have a lot of applications, a lot of websites that can teach you all those skills, all the skills that you need that doesn't necessarily require a college degree. That's Wilkins Sanchez again, who, along with his career in cybersecurity, is also the founder of the Rhode Island Group for Hispanic Technology. He provides technical assistance to local residents and gives this advice to job seekers. Always dream, always have a plan, always work for it, and never, never let anyone tell you that you can't do it. I'm Elizabeth Schulze, ABC News. As they struggle to fill thousands of open positions, a lot of companies have resisted paying workers more than minimum wage or offering them enhanced benefits. They say it would force them to raise prices or lose profits. A number of companies, however, are bucking that trend and discovering that paying workers well not only boosts morale, it boosts profits, too. ABC's Andy Field spoke with the boss and workers at one of those firms in Seattle. Many of us feel just like Fred sliding down that dinosaur tail at quitting time. The folks who work at Gravity Payments don't share Mr. Flintstone's enthusiasm for that 5 p.m. work whistle because... We treat people like human beings instead of a number, and people are starting to understand that that's possible. Jose Garcia helps run job recruiting for the credit card processing company, and unlike many post-pandemic companies struggling to find workers, he is swamped with job seekers. The very first job post that I that I had that I worked on over the span of three weeks, I had over 1,200 applications. Thanks for calling Gravity Payments. My One reason this credit card processing firm is so popular, the company's minimum wage isn't $7.25 or even $15 an hour. It is $70,000 a year, minimum. Now our median wage at the company is close to $100,000 a year, which I'm very proud of. That's Gravity Payments founder and CEO Dan Price, who once paid himself a million a year salary until workers pointed out they were making in some cases less than 40000 and doing most of the work. So Dan slashed his pay and gave everyone raises. And Harvard Business School did do a case study on us. But what they did is they said when you pay workers more, their capability goes up because they're less stressed because of the fact that they feel valued and their motivation is not harmed and therefore paying people more makes the company more efficient. But it's not just the pay that keeps workers happy. Jose Garcia doubled his salary from thirty-five to 70000 a year. He could afford a home closer to work, had time for the gym, even lost 150 pounds with his new spare time. At my heaviest, I was, I was somewhere around 420 pounds. Right now, I weighed in at my doctor, I was around 270, so still a lot of work to do. And again, it's easier because work gives me, one, the time to spend on my own personal activities. They're not forcing me to be there 24-7. That 70000 minimum salary doesn't come with 
well, great, you have to be here six days a week, 12 hours a day. That's not how it works. I'd be more than happy to help. if Carrie Chin has spent the last decade with gravity payments before the big raises, and she benefited from the new minimum. Do I want to afford a new home, or do I want to afford to start a family, or do I want to have a wedding where I pay for most of my guests? Having worked at Gravity over the years, I've been able to do all of those things. You know, I've been fortunate enough to be able to afford a home with enough space for this new growing family and then able to afford a nine-month-old. Babies are very expensive. But what about companies who say raising even the minimum wage will make their costs soar and force them to raise customer prices? Gravity Payments CEO Dan Price says his business not only survived, but thrived and created a lot of happy employees. We went from having zero to two babies uh, born amongst our staff to about 10 per year. We also had a 10x boom in first-time homeownership. We had on average between doubling and tripling of what the employee was contributing to their retirement account. Dan's company could not defy gravity when COVID hit, and treating his employees well in good times helped them survive the pandemic. We lost 55% of our revenue, and we said we're not going to lay anybody off, but we were potentially going to be under in four months. Our employees came together, and they said, "Uh -uh, uh-uh, we're keeping this company going. And they did anonymous, so there's no pressure, voluntary pay decreases. Just temporarily, 98% of our employees um, asked to take 100% anonymous, 100% voluntary pay cuts. So I I matched their sacrifice, and I, I also cut my pay. We were able to get all these small businesses open and get our revenue recovered. And as a company, we were able to pay everybody back. And now we've uh, resumed raises. So it's been amazing to see our employees save the company. They're the ones that create the value, not the CEO. Something the experts said could not be done. Dan Price and his Gravity Payments employees proved them wrong. A company, even Fred Flintstone, might not be that anxious to leave when the five o'clock whistle blows. Gravity Payments team in Seattle. I'm Andy Field in Washington, ABC News. For a lot of restaurant owners, the pandemic has felt like gut punch after gut punch. Closings, reopenings, mask mandates, online ordering, delivery only, capacity limits. But one sector of the food industry has been mostly pandemic proof frozen desserts. ABC's Eric Mallow has more on a couple of ice cream shop owners who say the future looks bright. Sherry, like blue jeans, baseball, and apple pie, we know ice cream is a staple of American culture. I'd argue more Americans prefer ice cream over apple pie or at least want a scoop of vanilla bean on the side. And like any job in the food industry, ice cream is hard work, long hours, deliveries, and if you're working at an outdoor snack bar, oftentimes you're working in some pretty brutal summer heat. For much of the past 18 months, we've read about the struggles so many in the service industry have faced. But for frozen desserts... There's been quite a boom. Americans really are pushing their love of ice cream to new heights. Matt Herrick is a senior vice president with the International Dairy Foods Association. He told me Americans' love affair with ice cream is as strong as ever. Americans in particular who have always loved ice cream, you know, they eat 23 pounds of ice cream a year. They increase their overall consumption of ice cream as something to sort of indulge in during the pandemic. And that's continued. Admittedly, I'm probably one of those Americans who consumes more than 23 pounds of ice cream a year. 
Herrick says doesn't really matter where it's sold. People like me are finding ways to continue buying their favorite frozen treats. Ice cream sales generally, whether they're we're talking about retail or we're talking about food service, have remained very strong. They've actually overperformed previous years. And local scoop shop owners are feeling the consumer demand. This year has been absolutely amazing. Melanie Trombley is the owner of Big Daddy's Ice Cream with locations in Wells, Maine and another in neighboring Ogunquit. Melanie and her husband purchased the shop in the seaside town at what many would assume would be the worst possible time. We bought Big Daddy's March of 2020. We went under contract December 2019, oh not God. knowing that the pandemic was going to hit. With millions of Americans hitting the road for summer vacation this year, ice cream shops like Big Daddy's have become, figuratively speaking, a hot destination. People are just excited, especially the natives, uh, residents of Wells, because they wanted to get out. And this was a great thing to go get ice cream at Big Daddy's and sit on the tailgate of their car. For Melanie and many other business owners, ice cream seemed mostly pandemic proof. I know the restaurants around here and they've had to close two days a week. It's very hard because this is the time of year that they make money. But that's not to say it hasn't been without challenges, especially for those who aren't located in or near a summer vacation destination. In New York City's East Village, the original Big Gay ice cream shop closed permanently after an extended shutdown, as did Grom Gelato on 59th Street. Mikey Cole owns Mikey Likes It Ice Cream, which has multiple locations in New York City. Tells me his business has kept up for the past year and a half, but it's still an uphill battle. Some people have been awesome and dropped a $20 donation, a $5 donation. But in reality, it's like we're coming in every day, putting a, a product out there and working and moving forward. And just some of the resources that you expect to have just aren't there. Mikey applied for a PPP loan last year and says with all the paperwork, it's been hard to receive that money. It hurts when you look at the news and you see like big corporations got the PPP money. It's like, how come a small business like ourselves doesn't get anything? Whether it's in a seaside town or a major city, ice cream shop owners like Mikey and Melanie are discovering their biggest challenges have to do with labor. For Melanie, it's been mostly okay up until this point. We have not had any issues up until right now because everybody's going back to school. As for Mikey, he says most of his employees decided to continue working at his shop. But he wants to ensure his customers, they know that Mikey Likes It Ice Cream is a safe place to come in and enjoy a frozen treat. Unfortunately, if you don't want to get your vaccination, you can no longer be an employee of Mikey Likes It Ice Cream. Matt Herrick with the International Dairy Foods Association tells me these issues are affecting business owners across the dairy industry. And that frozen dessert shops are just a microcosm of the American economy right now. They are able to find workers, but oftentimes not enough. Despite some of the struggles with labor... There's still a lot of optimism ahead for shop owners. I'm not worried at all about the future. I think it's going to be great. For the rest of the summer and into next year, they expect to continue serving kids, families, and even the messiest of ice cream eaters. She sees you with hot fudge on your face and she ends it? Do you really think she'd be that superficial? Why not? I would be. I'm Eric Malo, ABC News. The numbers prove that week by week, the American jobs picture is looking more encouraging 18 months after the pandemic began. People are working. And a lot of them are finding jobs they like, including selling ice cream. We couldn't think of a sweeter way to end the summer or the show. Thanks for listening. Help Wanted was presented by ABC News correspondent Sherry Preston and produced by Trevor Hastings. This has been a special presentation from ABC News Radio.
Married moms in the suburbs, they've been called soccer moms, they've been called security moms. Pamela Wilk is a so-called soccer mom. Those so-called Walmart moms. She calls herself a hockey mom. I love those hockey moms. The hockey mom trying to connect with the soccer moms. In the 1990s, the idea of soccer moms as the quintessential swing voter took hold. Elections could be won or lost based on a candidate's ability to appeal to them. But were quote-unquote soccer moms actually the deciding factor? In a new series on the 538 Politics podcast, we take a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the campaign throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.